This is Famous and Gravy, a conversation about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity. This person died in 2020, age 78. He grew up in Oneida, New York, where he was a rebellious youth who excelled in athletics. Dennis Hopper is the only person that's even remotely <laughs> coming to mind because I heard the word rebellious. Not Dennis Hopper. I believe he's been dead a while. He began his career in the 1960s hitchhiking and busking around the country before establishing himself in Greenwich Village. So he's artsy, but <laughs> athletic, so a good catch. I mean, Woody Guthrie's been dead forever. I got nothing, man. In a career that spanned six decades, he never had a top 40 pop hit. Ooh, is it a Beach Boy? No, they would have had pop hits. Mainstream radio programmers didn't play his music, perhaps because of his gruff, braying singing voice and his reputation for being intoxicated on stage or for failing to show up for performances altogether. Oh my God, what's his last name? Jerry. From The Grateful Dead? Is he dead before 2020? Jerry Garcia? Yeah. Um, not Jerry Garcia. He became a mainstay of the Texas outlaw movement that catapulted Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings to fame years after his best-known composition, Mr. Bojangles. Oh, J Jerry Jeff Walker. Jerry Jeff Walker. Today's dead celebrity is Jerry Jeff Walker. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> We're going to sit and BS a little bit and hope to have a lot of fun and, and play lots of songs and have a good time tonight. Well, from, uh, great. For us, this goes back about, we're just saying downstairs, about 20 years. We started on a stage somewhere in Mississippi <sighs> with two guitars. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Yeah, we were playing over there. Jerry uh, Jeff was my hero then. It took about 24 hours to change yeah, that. Yeah, that, that changed real quick. I went, I'm not sure I want to be like this. Welcome to Famous and Great. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Jerry Jeff Walker died 2020, age 78. This is our first one of the year. This is the first one of the year. Happy New 2023. Year. I know. Yeah, happy New so, Year. So what this means is that t someone who has died in 2012 is no longer eligible for our show. That's right. But we got one in with the last one. With we Dick did. Clark. Dick Clark. We, just we got him just under the wire. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Jerry Jeff Walker the singer-songwriter who wrote the much-recorded standard Mr. Bojangles and later became a mainstay of the Texas outlaw movement that catapulted Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings to fame, died on Friday at a hospital in Austin, Texas. He was 78. Pretty good. They got a few things in there. The more I look at it, the more I like it. Yeah. I think it may be great, but let's take it apart. We got to start with the very first three words. Jerry Jeff Walker? Yeah. Yeah, not, not Ronald. Ronald Clyde Crosby. He did legally change his name. Yeah. So I think they were right. Plus, this is what we know him for. Yeah, and, said, and we had this discussion with Muhammad Ali. And yeah, stuff. and many others. I mean, I think that the famous person who died in the newsworthy event is Jerry Jeff Walker. But worth know. noting, and this is part of the life tale that we're going to get into. Oh, yeah. Good call. And we'll get more into it. All right. Singer-songwriter had to use that phrase. 
Yep, right. right. I, although I did think that you could perhaps say folk singer. Let's say Bob Dylan. I think mm-hmm. we're gonna, Dylan's going to come up again in this conversation. Bob Dylan dies tomorrow. The New York Times has to write their his obituary. Did they say Bob Dylan, the singer-songwriter? No, I think they're going to throw in folk. Okay. What about Robert Earl Kane? Uh, Texas country. I mean, John Prine got singer-songwriter, I think. Yes, which is so, appropriate. I think if you're— if, I think it often means folk singer. It does— no, 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 not going with that. You're not with me on that. I, no. I think the way it's used in the obituaries, it's often um, singer-songwriters are like folk singer adjacent if they're not folk singers themselves. What do you think about Jeff Tweedy? Is he folk singer to you? <sighs> yeah, okay. I mean, I guess I see your point. It's just that— um, Ryan Adams. This is what comes to mind when, when you think, think singer-songwriters? Song- of yeah. today, singer-songwriters of today. Okay, well, I only bring this up because I do think that you could have used the word folk in here, or folk hero, or folk star, or folk country, or folk something, and that, that they didn't, right? Yes. So that, that's why I lingered on that. Okay, yeah, um, like country folk, I think, would have been the only other choice. Yeah, uh, much recorded standard, Mr. Bojangles. Let's come back to the Mr. Bojangles thing in a second. Mainstay of the Texas outlaw movement that catapulted Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Mainstay, this is a Yogi Berra term, <laughs> there it isn't is. it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's actually a great word to use for Jerry Jeff Walker. He is a mainstay of this, you know, genre of music, Texas outlaw movement. Correct. And then the way that they talked about it or that they wrote it in that way, the chronology is actually correct. Yes. And that's something I was not that familiar with. Me is that neither. Jerry Jeff preceded Willie and Waylon in kind of the ascension of Austin and the outlaw scene. And the outlaw music scene, yes. And he, I mean, he kind of laid the groundwork for it. And that's actually maybe my favorite thing about this, that this is accurate and novel and tells a story, and it's interesting that Jerry Jeff begot Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings <laughs> and then died in the hospital in Austin. That makes sense. All right, so let's talk about the Mr. Bojangles piece of this. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. I, I'm coming at this particular Famous and Gravy episode with a tremendous amount of bias because of proximity. I grew up in Austin. Jerry Jeff was absolutely a mainstay. He was always there. And I knew about him and about his music really long before I knew about Mr. Bojangles. And I wonder how much of the world sees him as a almost one-hit wonder with Mr. Bojangles. A lot of it. Right. I would guess. I, that's my assumption, too. But I, I learned that later. And so I think it's right that they reference this sort of next-level famous song. Yes. Um, but it's not my first association with him, even though I think it's most people's first association with him. And I think that is just our bias, meaning you and I. And yeah. that brings up a point I want to talk to you about, is that we've got to bring some self-awareness Jerry Jeff Walker is a bigger name to us than he is to the majority of our listeners. Yeah, this is regional fame in a lot of ways. Yeah, we need to be conscious of that, the way we talk about him, that a lot of the topics and names we go into are not as assumed as we think they are. Yeah, right. No, no, no. I've been giving that a lot of thought lately. I mean, people didn't know who Larry McMurtry was, who I think also kind of falls into this category. I mean, so, okay, let's get back to it. There's a lot that's working here. I like that they got Mr. Bojangles in there. I think they had to. If you know this man for anything, you probably know him about this. But then they also got the comma splice in here saying, mainstay of Texas outlaw country and helped, you know, create Willie and Waylon as you know them. So there's a lot of like nod to his pioneering accomplishments or contribution to, you know, a genre of music. Yeah, I think they did him justice. I think so too. And I feel like the author knew what the fuck they were talking about when they wrote it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going nine. Yeah. Where are you? 
I hate it when we match. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm also a nine. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think we should feel good about that. I'm not really pointing out any flaws that you didn't, but I got to have some socks blown off for a 10. Okay. Category two? Yep. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together. Come up with five things we love about this person, five reasons we ought to be talking about them in the first place. I think you go first. Can I say something first before we get into it? You mentioned proximity a second ago. So there's actually a few firsts on this. So first of all, this is the first time that I have met somebody who is being featured on Famous and Gravy. I met Jerry Jeff on at least two occasions that I remember. Okay. And I think it might have been more. Those others were when I was drunk, um, <laughs> which makes sense, right? So there's that. The last thing to get off, before, and then we'll get, I promise, we'll get to category two here in a second, is that... I met Django in the lead up to this episode because the family made available a documentary. They actually helped us with some of the source data. They helped us with some of the source data. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners, Michael Osborne here. I want to step outside the episode for just a second because as Amit and I were working on this episode, we discovered a documentary called OK Buckaroos. It was directed by a guy named Patrick Tourville, and both Patrick and Jerry Jeff's family, including his son Django, were incredibly helpful for helping us get a hold of a copy of the documentary. The documentary itself is called OK Buckaroos, and it is awesome. I really recommend it. If you like this episode, you should absolutely check out the DVD, which can be purchased at jerryjeff.com. We will also link to jerryjeff.com in the show notes. All right, back to the episode. And, you know, Django said, I, I hope you do them right, you know? Yeah. So... One of the premises of our show is like celebrities live in this whole other category. And, you know, I think you and I do the work of trying to humanize them, but most of the time we don't really know them or knew the people who did know them. Not true here. Which I think is going to make it more interesting. I hope so. That's my hope for it. I hope so. There's other deeper stuff going on in terms of proximity, but we'll save it. And actually, let me lead off with this. This is not a bad segue. Okay. The first thing I have here is, <laughs> it's a little generic, but... Overall, really good life plan and kind of perfect story for a folk singer. So okay. let me lay this out. Did I you think, just take away all other possibilities of— <laughs> I don't think so. I think that, like, or here's, here's what I think. I think that there are stages in life. Ideally, you have a kind of innocent, carefree childhood, and then you might have a rebellious sort of adolescence, and then you have a free-spirited, you know, early adulthood and emerging adulthood, and then you grow into an adult and you assume certain responsibilities, and then maybe you even become a kind of mentor and father figure or mother figure or whatever. And yeah, I, I dropped off your scale. Of few, I dropped off this a ago. long time ago, too. Okay. Most people do. But I feel like, overall, that's like the stages I want to have in life. That's the staircase. That's the blueprint. That's the life plan. And he he was very vital in each of those life plans, especially like the folk singer thing. I mean, he goes out in his 20s. There's a lot of partying, run-ins with the cops with ever getting too crazy and out of control. And by his, you know, 40s and into his 50s, he's making a decent living and he remains relevant and becomes a mentor to several important people. I think just the overall plan, that's just like, I want that. In terms of desirability, I kind of feel like there's a natural evolution to the next stage that I want to be on pace with, and I feel like he's signposting that with his story. Maybe the most important piece of that, too, is, I think, the sense of freedom he experiences from an adolescent to his 40s. Like, his 20s and 30s are great. 
Yeah. They're wild, they're free, they're adventurous. I don't know, they're beautiful. And when I finally got out of one and got rolling, I said, oh, I'm free. I'm not going to get caught here. I want to keep moving until I've seen everything I can see and experience a bunch of stuff as I can experience. We've had on the street corners, past the hat. So occasionally a bar about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning would let us come in and catch some of the people drifting back out of the quarter at the end of the night. We could put a hat over and play music. Put your money in the hat. I'm Gypsy Song Man, yes sir, you'd like to hear my song. You did gloss over some things. I mean, the man did go broke Oh yeah, in the late 70s, got sober almost out of necessity. I don't think it was totally sober, but I think quit the heavy drinking and the drugs. So, not as... Don't as... misunderstand me, Ahmed. I'm not saying, like, look at all these rosy chapters of his life and there was no pain or difficulty. Sure. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the response to each life stage and into the evolution of the next thing is kind of the pacing of it is a, is a great full rich overall good life plan yeah i'm not just timing this very is well good at no all, it's going to make a good biopic you think i so? think is what you're saying is that yeah. just like it follows this character like an updike novel yeah sort of of that you just go small town live carefree create this new home find your love still stay crazy, bring it down a little bit, have kids, become an icon, become a mentor, become a grandparent, and live it out a little easier despite some disease and health difficulties you're fighting later in life. It's a pretty good blueprint. It's that, it's actually that simple. You know, this is part of the reason we mythologize folk singers, right? Is that that's kind of what they're doing. Well, he did it. And I think it's beautiful. That's my number one. I'll sign off on it. All right. What do you got for number two? Number two, immigrant. Uh, and this is not about the United States of America. This is about the state of Texas. Yeah. So not a native Texan, but came to define so much of the Texas music scene. Yeah. Right? Born in New York, lived in New York through high school and beyond. Really didn't land in Texas until, what, the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So we're talking the man's about 30 years old. Yeah. Right? Before he finds Texas. Yeah. Then not only, like, defines sort of this aspect of Texas music almost comes to define two cities in Texas. Mm. Sort of is the definition of Austin in the 70s. Yeah. And Luckenbach yeah. uh, would not have near the cachet it would right now if it were not for Jerry Jeff Walker. This is true. So that's remarkable. And here's what I like about it is you can do that. Yeah. You know, especially this fucking state as uh, stubborn as we can be. You know, one of our heroes here that we're talking about came from the state of New York. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, that's as American of a story as it comes, is go manifest destiny, go somewhere and conquer, and you can still do that in the 20th century. And I at first didn't like that. I remember one of the first things I heard about Jerry Jeff Walker um, was he's not from Texas. This is the same with me. It was interesting how people like in Austin and people I grew up with like were quick to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lyle Lovett has a song, like, you're not from Texas, yeah. you know? Um, but it's okay, and we seem to to welcome him. I mean, I'm not from Texas. I was born in Detroit by way of India. Is that right? Before. I was, that I'm Indian? <laughs> you were born in Detroit. I yeah, we moved that. here when I was three. Is that right? But I'm as Texan as anybody else. I agree. I like that he was able to do it. But isn't that interesting that both you and I had the experience growing up of people being quick to point out, you know, Jerry Jeff's from New York. Yes. Like, I, what what is that all about? 
it's sort of calling him out. I think it was his detractors that wanted to point that out. And I think I bought on the wagon at first. Yeah, I did too. I think, I think it was this idea that he's a dressed up cowboy. Yeah. The idea that he is just playing a Texan. I got to say, though, I had to really, like, in the past few weeks and days getting ready for this episode, I realized how much of, like, I had to fight against that message uh, that somehow he's not authentic that I learned at an early age. Because he is authentic. And yeah. the more I read his story, the, you know, he he chooses Austin in the late 60s and early 70s in part because he has experimented with a lot of the rest of America and is feeling a kind of cultural pull to plant his flag here. And it's like, this is the place where I can express who I am and what I'm all about and what kind of music I have in me, which is, there's nothing more authentic than that. So it, it bothers me that I grew up with this bias. Yeah, so I think he shattered this wall that we as Texans put up. Yeah. So I love that. It's the all-American story. I love it too, and I think it's a great number two. I am kind of building off of that with my number three. It's not just that he sort of claimed Texas. I think he's as much a progenitor of the Austin music scene in the 1970s as anybody. Again, Willie and Waylon credit him with paving the way. Also, I think you could throw David Onco, Guy Clark, Towns Van Sant, and even Jimmy Buffett as people who pointed to, like, major influence from Joe Jeff Walker. Yeah. So I think that I, I'm trying to say something about, like, the music scene he helped create, separate and apart from the identity of the state. Yeah, Austin as a countercultural place, as a place where rednecks and hippies merge, right. is exactly that, like, 1970s scene that Jerry Jeff could maybe be credited almost exclusively towards starting. Yeah, I mean, and, I think most people would want to point to Willie. Yeah, but the thing is, I think Willie arrived a little bit after Jerry Jeff. Yeah, there's no he question. He returned I mean, from Nashville a little bit after Jerry Jeff. That's the thing. Even though what, Willie's roots in Texas, despite my last point, are deeper, Yeah, I think he arrived a little bit later. Oh, no, I, I think that that's absolutely the chronology. I think Willie had written songs like Crazy and um, you know, every whatever else he'd done in Nashville, was struggling, and then, I mean, this is the way Willie and Waylon talked about it. They see Jerry Jeff in Austin. They're like, I want to go home and do that. Every Sunday, what we do is we go to up to a guy's uh, had a, a little ranch out by the lake, and uh, we would everybody chip in by three, four halves of beer, and all the bands would meet and jam. Oh wow! And the girls all showed up and hang out, <laughs> so it was just dancing and dogs and chicks and booze, and we started calling it the Austin Interchangeable Dance Band because everybody knew everybody. Right. And if you were going on the road, you grabbed this lead guitar player, that drummer, and go and. And uh, we just had a lot of fun. It was just a great time to, to be doing it. I think let's narrow it down and be specific. I mean, I think he created the Austin movement of the 1970s, which is still reverberating into what everybody fantasizes about in Austin. When That's these true. people and yeah. when these Facebook employees in San Francisco think about the next place they're going to move, they get this image of, you know, peace signs and cowboy boots, and that is very yeah. much can be drawn a direct back straight line to this, to Jerry Jeff. To this moment. Yeah, yeah, to Jerry Jeff cutting an album there in the early 70s. Yeah. Okay. That's my number three progenitor of the Austin music scene. Uh, number four, healthy form of masculinity. Oh, say more. What you just talked about him like pioneering this this cowboy scene, yeah, right. A lot of masculinity in that. A lot of talks about yeah, you know, bar fights, hard drinking. Yeah, but I think what distinguishes Jerry Jeff from some of his peers, and maybe not from Willie so much, but certainly Waylon Merle, Johnny Cash, 
is he had a different type of softness to it. Mm. And one thing that tipped me off to this is I was listening to an interview with him that was recorded in 2006 in Key West. And he was talking about, you know, how he's had to slow down. Uh, the guy's like, well, what do you do? And he's like, well, I do yoga. I'm ready to be where I am right now. I got two lovely kids, a girl and a little boy. And uh, I'm enjoying feeling good, and I've got lots of things that I've experienced and written about. Now it's a nice time to be able to perform them well. No more chicken fried steaks, and uh, you know, I thought that was good eating. <laughs> you know, I was doing myself good. Pretty much just basically watching, eating lighter and leaner, and doing a little running, and playing lots of golf. Everybody needs a little golf zen in their life. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. I just, I like that. You know, yeah. that you have a guy who's one of his most famous lyrics is, you know, Case alone, star beer and wild turkey liquor, and then you know, a couple decades later, he's like, "I'm doing yoga." Yeah, and he also just, you know, he lived a good portion of his life in the last few decades in Belize. You know, a mm-hmm. real softy, yeah. a real romantic, yeah. I think. But he's still a hard fighting old school cowboy, and he's kind of both. But it looks like he's had the self awareness, the bodily awareness, the romance, the emotional freedom. Yeah that I think is really needed in healthy masculinity. That's a really interesting one, Ahmed, because I I do think there's a man's man quality to Jerry Jeff Walker. Oh, hugely. Yeah, but I also agree. I see a, a, I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but I do see like an evolving definition of masculinity. So whenever you see anybody kind of like maintaining a rootedness in his masculinity, but pushing the boundaries a little bit, I think it deserves to be applauded. So I actually really like that one. Yeah, more than applauded. I mean, the more men that you have that are comfortable and, you know, still calling themselves a man by the fact that they're belting out songs, wearing boots and cowboy hats, but are also doing yoga, wearing their emotions yeah. on their sleeves and showing their soft sides, uh, that's going to unfold in in terrific ways. All right. Should I take number five? Yes. I'm going to go very simple here. Chose his name. Okay. So I did read his autobiography, and there's a backstory to how he got the name. Gypsy Jer- Songman was the autobiography. Gypsy Songman, Yes. So he first gets the name Jerry because when he's still in New York, after he's graduated high school, he's not going to college. He's not really got a plan. His family encourages him to go into the National Guard. He is on leave, and this is in New York, but he's on leave. And at the time, the drinking age in New Jersey was 21, and he was 20. And somebody gave him a fake ID, and the name on it was Jerry Davis. So for a while, he called himself Jerry Davis. Then he goes AWOL from the National Guard, and he's hitchhiking around the country. He goes to New Orleans and around Texas, and he leaves home and, you know, has a guitar and kind of living the folk singer life. At some point in New Orleans, he runs into somebody who was in the company at the National Guard and said, you know, they're looking for you. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go home and deal with this. So he's gone AWOL, right? He could go to jail. So he goes back home and faces the music and— there had been a change of command there, and they basically said, we won't tell anybody if you won't tell anybody, and you're not going to go to jail. And he goes, okay. So he walks out of there, and he's and as he's walking out, he's feeling this rush of freedom. He's like, from now on, I'm going to call myself Jeff Walker because I'm walking freely. But then he goes back to New Orleans as Jeff Walker, and everybody there is like, everybody here knows you as Jerry. And he's like, but, but I'm Jeff Walker now. I've walked free from jail. And then he has the idea, you know what? Jerry Jeff Walker. And that's how he gets the name. So Walker actually has a literal meaning to it? That's correct. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And he only went with the Jerry part of it because he liked Jeff, but he only went with the Jerry part of it because of a fake ID. Yeah. Isn't that great? But then Jerry Jeff combined just ends up being such a oh, it's perfect. Texas country song. Yeah, name. it's perfect. You know, how many of the outlaw country, you know, musicians have three name names, right? Robert Earl Kane and David Ra- Alco. Yeah, David Alco, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Downs Van Sant in a way. I mean, it's a little bit different. But anyway, the freedom to choose your name. Okay. I think that's a great thing. I think we need that as humans. I think we need to be able to drift in the wind and be anonymous and try on different hats and try on different boots and try on different climates and adventures and be somebody new. Yeah. Uh, and nothing captures that more than I'm going by a new name here. I mean, I think what we're saying is the summary of almost all of these things is you can be born Ronald Crosby in New York and by the age of 35 be Jerry Jeff Walker a Texan. That's exactly right. So I don't know if we even need to recap with that, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, so to recap, I said overall good life plan. Number two, immigrant Texan. Number three, progenitor of the Austin music scene. Uh, number four, healthy masculinity. And number five, chose his name. All right. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. All right, you go first. Okay. So we talked about this. He is not from Texas, was not born in Texas. He's from Onietta, New York. So shortly after high school, he tells this story about he's working different jobs. He's dabbled in some music, been in some bands, but he's kind of got that itch that something big is happening. And you know where we are now. We're like early 60s. There is something big happening. Right. So he's in a bar drinking beer, and he meets a man named Howie Clark. And the way that he says this... And I'm talking to this guy who's been some places, Howie Clark. He's pretty famous in Oneonta for assuming identities and bouncing checks. So I said to him, I said, how do you get out of here? He said, Route 7, South. I said, no, I mean, like, how do you get going? He said, well, let me finish your beer and I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> so we both drank our beers. We put them down. He said, let's go. So we walk over somewhere. Somebody said, where are you going? He said, we're going to head for Florida. <laughs> this is as Kerouac of a story as it gets. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the most famous dialogues in Kerouac's On the Road is where Neil Cassidy says to, to Jack Kerouac and says, hey, man, we got to we gotta go. And Jack Kerouac says, yeah, 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 we got to go. Where are we going? And Neil Cassidy says, I don't know, man, but we got to get there. Yeah. And this is this is that story. It, it encapsulates everything about what is out there in America. And it is that release and it is that freedom of spirit and it's that saying yes and all you got to do is go and all you got to do is ride down that highway. Whatever was freed and released from Jerry Jeff's body in that time, I guarantee you, was like no other satisfaction that any other human being can achieve. So that very moment, as well as a road trip that ensued, because I'm a big road trip guy. I love the road trip freedom story. Me too. That is my Malkovich. In his autobiography, he talks about how if you live in a small town and if you're not careful, decisions will just be made for you. You will wind up in the National Guard and then you'll wind up in the factory. And then So to just leave town is to break free of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I just love the simplicity in the answer. Yeah. Because I think there's so much to that in life. 
that you just got to go. And I'm not romanticizing youth, and I'm not even necessarily overly romanticizing the early 1960s. I'm saying sometimes the answer is you just got to fucking go. Yeah, Just no, go do it. 100% just agree. Just go make the choice. 100% agree. You are absolutely right that there is more agency and potential in where we can go and who we can be and what we can do than we ever give ourselves credit for. And there is nothing more symbolic of that than I just met a guy at the bar and next thing you know, I'm hitchhiking with him to Florida. Yeah. How do you get out of this town? You just go. You just go. It's a beautiful man. All right, Mike Malkovich? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Todd Snyder is maybe the world's biggest Jerry Jeff Walker fan. And maybe people don't know who Todd Snyder is, but he's a folk singer. He's, you know, active today. And if you don't know his music, he is great. He's one of my favorites. Um, But Jerry Jeff was a very active mentor to Todd Snyder. I mean, he really took him under his wing. And so they get to be friends. And, you know, Todd Snyder opens for Jerry Jeff. And there's this one story of them both playing in Santa Fe one night. And they played and then they closed out the bars. And they're walking home and the streets are deserted. It's just the two of them. And they hear around the corner somebody playing Mr. Bojangles. Going ding, 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 ding. And I said, man, is somebody playing Bojangles? And we walked around the corner and some old street dude for no one is singing Bojangles. Got a hat out. No one's on the street. Coincidentally? Coincidentally. Come on. No, I can't. I couldn't believe it. And we were like, we got to go over there. So we walk over there and I'm, I'm thinking... I got to tell this guy that this, and, yeah, right. and then I thought, no, I want to sit here and see if Jerry Jeff says who he is. Yeah. He didn't. I think he cried even a little bit. He's 70 something. And, and so we sat there and we listened to him. And when it got over, Jerry Jeff went, wow, well, it was great, son. That was great. And put a few bucks in his thing. And we walked on back to the hotel. What does that got to feel like, right? To be wandering the street of some town after you've been playing and you hear your song being played into the darkness. There's nobody even around. That your song is like playing in the darkness because they connect with it so deeply. And that he also, you know, he had to be asking himself the same question that Todd Snyder was thinking. Do I tell this guy I wrote that song mm-hmm. or not? I don't know what was going through his mind then, but I, it's my Malkovich moment because I'd, I'd like to be behind the eyes of hearing a song I wrote being played to empty streets in the middle of the night. A new man bojangles and you dance for you worn out you You jump so high You jump so high And then he lightly touch down Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Michael, do you know one of the ways in which I'm cool? (laughs) What did you have in mind? I have vinyl records. Oh, that is cool. Vinyl records are a lot of fun. I love studying the old covers, and I love that the music is actually on the record, right? It's like been engraved. Totally, and you will never guess where I buy my vinyl records from. I would assume that you are going to garage sales. That is incorrect. I exclusively get my vinyl records at Half Price Books. I'm sorry, you said Half Price Books? That is correct. you're talking about vinyl records? Yes, Half Price Books is more than books. Board games, vinyl records, CDs, movies, puzzles, and even brand new bestsellers. My goodness. It's so much more than just books. Yes. But when it comes to books, I do know that Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. And Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Okay, you may not have known this. There was a first wife. Did you realize this? I didn't realize this, no. That's because it's very hard to find on the internet, although it is in his autobiography, so I'm glad I read the damn thing. He married a woman named Janet Forbes around 1967 to 69. It's actually kind of hard to pinpoint. He's kind of floating between D.C. and New York at the time, and it's not even clear how the marriage completely dissolved, but it did. Uh, So there was a first marriage, um, and boy, I couldn't find anything anywhere about this lady other than he mentions it in his book. The much more important marriage is to Susan in 1974. Jerry Jeff was 32 when they got married, and they were married until his death, age 78, so married 46 years. Two kids, Jesse and Django, and by all accounts, I mean, Susan becomes this major force behind the scenes by the late 70s, and to hear Jerry Jeff talk about it, I mean, it it sounds like there were some rocky years because of the party and because of the drugs, because of the scene, because of, you know, him being just sort of a mischievous scamp or whatever you want to call it, where it does sound like she laid down the law. But then when he decides to settle down and and she, I think it's around the time Django goes to preschool, she's ready to go back to work. And he's like, well, you should come work for me. Mm-hmm. And what she says to him is like, no way. Yeah. Uh, she's like, if I'm going to work for you, I'm going to be firing everybody who is currently you know, all these hanger-ons. Yes. And that's actually what happens. And 
he never records with another major record label again, and they kind of start a kind of DIY operation for the Jerry Jeff business, essentially. Um, so he publishes all his music independently from there on, and she is booking guests, and she is really watching the books and reaching out and connecting with the fans. Computers had just come out when we started Tried and True. So, you know, we were just excited. You could actually have a database, you know, of your own. We printed up these little uh, tent cards, basically, that they put on the table. Sign up, postcard on the other side, send it in. And we put all those names and addresses in computers. Only one I on all the quarterly newsletters, we put Jerry Jeff's touring schedule. And so, you know, if, if Jerry Jeff was within 150 or 200 miles of any place he played, these fans would come. It looks like an absolutely wonderful marriage. Not that it doesn't have problems, but, uh, or, or that it, there weren't these rocky moments, but there's some stuff in the autobiography that really won me over. I'll, I'll give you my favorite thing, just to get it off my chest. Okay. Somewhere in the 90s, he's at a party at their house, and he's checking out a woman from across the party, and uh, and then it turns out it's his wife. <laughs> and, he, and, like, he didn't realize it was her. And he said, in that moment, I fell in love with her all over again. And... It's those words, actually, that really, really melted me because I do think that the trick to marriage is falling in love more than once, that what happens in a marriage is that uh, they drive you crazy, your spouse drives you crazy, they piss you off sometimes, and, and you sometimes just want to scream and hop in the car and drive to Florida or, or anywhere. Mm -hmm. But what makes a marriage great when it works is that you fall in love again. And that, and that there's a, it's not just a recycling of emotion. It's more like fall in love for the first time again, um, if that makes any sense. And so to hear him use those exact words when describing his wife told me that this is, from what I can tell, a great marriage. Suzanne, you are a jewel, the rarest I've ever seen. I wish I could polish it off on the edges of the craziest dream. I mean, the fast living that Jerry Jeff did and the road life, the fact that it was genuinely successful and believable to seemingly all those around them yeah, is heartwarming. It is. We got to dedicate a little bit of time to the fast living thing. I mean, Jerry Jeff was known as like a partier. His songs were about drinking songs a lot were about initially. drinking and like, the, you know, the vibe of the albums, Viva Terra Lingua is, you know, come party with us and Luchenbach, right? Yes. I mean, and everything about his persona and his sort of folk hero-ness is about getting drunk and having a good time. I mean, he's often called the Jimmy Buffett of Texas. He was the first one that took Jimmy Buffett to Key West. Yeah. Did you see that? He basically showed Jimmy Buffett, yeah. this is how you party, like, you know, <laughs> south of Miami. I'll take Texas, you take Florida, I'll drive you there, right? I mean, yeah. that's how the—and you hear Buffett talking about, like, Jerry Jeff was my hero for a while. So it's actually—I mean, this, this comes to a serious point. It's that counterweight that I think uh, is really interesting mm. because Susan was—I um, mean, I, I don't think she was a teetotaler at all, but she was— 
a managerial badass. Yeah. Right? Like she worked for, she was an aide to Charlie Wilson, the famous Charlie Wilson. So she brings some tough chief of staff type of experience into managing him. Yes. And an article I read from the Austin American Statesman says she's widely credited with pulling Walker through his toughest times, both personally and financially. Yeah. So without a Susan Walker, we may just have had like a really sad demise of a Jerry Jeff Walker in, you know, the 80s, the early 80s even. Yeah. So I think you have to give this one very high marks. And, and you know, the marriage stays intact and they are together until his death. And... What I know of the kids, they're doing well. Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> who knows what you can tell from Facebook, but Django's career is doing pretty well. And from what I can see, it looks good. Yeah. Category five? Yep. Net worth. I saw three million. Yeah, I think that's where he ended. What'd you think about that number? Seemingly a little low. I mean, he's got a house by the end. He's got a house in Belize and a, a property in New Orleans in the French Quarter. Yes. Um, and he's living the life. Yeah, and good property in Austin, and essentially the last you know fifteen years or so, just picking and choosing the gigs he does. It really seems like like he's got a lot of freedom of choice for when and how and where he's going to play. Yeah, he wasn't cashing out like till the end. Right. You know, had he have continued a rigorous road schedule, perhaps he could have ended up with more. But he didn't. This is a man of leisure. Yeah, like Belize was very purposeful and intentional as where they spent a lot of their time because it was pure leisure. It was pure blue waters and sunsets and local people. Yeah, it was island life. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, 100%. The thing about getting older is you start realizing you can live on less and less. We've kind of sorted through life, and we have certain things we pick out we like. And I think at that point, it's going to be down to clean water and some warm sand and uh, and uh, my wife. Which contrasts with the 70s, where, I mean, to hear him describe his lifestyle. We stayed in better hotels. We flew on planes. We partied. I kept charging and then paying. And I put them all on America. We'd run up $100,000. It was crazy churn of parties and rental cars and hotel rooms getting trashed and, you know, picking up the tab for everybody. And just as soon as you get home and the check clears, like you're back out on the road to cover the next set of costs. I mean, it sounds chaotic. Yeah. It sounds fun, but it sounds absolutely chaotic and like sort of, I don't know, the drunken beer haze. Not to mention, it sounds like he, there was definitely some harder drugs there for a while. I mean, it's yeah, the 70s. Yeah, so the, thing. It's, yeah, it's the 70s. What are you going to do? Yeah. But let me ask this question. This is something that's really on my mind. The folk hero or the folk singer is a kind of, you know, American archetype in a way. The, the idea of somebody who's busking, who's just here for the music and is kind of drifting from town to town. I mean, this is like a cowboy, and at some point, it's got to be also a burden when you're successful at it. We used to say that anything worth doing is worth overdoing, <laughs> and then how far do you go over until you, that's too much, and you have to come back. Wouldn't it be hard to be Jerry Jeff at some point? Right? Yeah. And okay, so when does that happen? When does it become hard to be Jerry Jeff? Is it somewhere in the 70s after, you know, there's like this surge of interest in this music and in this scene, it so much is built around, you know, partying out in the Texas Hill Country. Like, when does that weigh heavy on you? Seems like it's the 90s. It kind of seems like when he started to leave Texas as just part of his life and take up this Belize Island time. Mm. To me, that's the signal of when it was a little too hard to just be Jerry Jeff. Interesting. Because he cut those albums in the late 90s and all, like these Belizean yeah, albums island that are music, like yeah. cowboy boots and yeah. bikinis or something. Yeah. And I think that's when he said, like, I'm just not going to be all Jerry Jeff all the time. Yeah. Down by the beach alone here and he keeps 
and it's very different. Yeah. Like, it's not good. <laughs> I agree. This is, I guess, a recurring theme of our show. When are you trapped by fame and trapped by your reputation? Like, when does it become really, really hard to reinvent yourself? And there's a man who changed his name and who chose a whole new identity. You know, down the road, it became hard to not be that. Yeah, but he he actively chose to not be that. Yeah. By being this part-time island guy and even <laughs> island singer. He played his gigs. Yeah. He played some gigs in Belize. So I think he actually consciously avoided too many of the trappings of fame. And maybe that's why he only landed up with $3 million. Uh, one little story on money is by about 1978, a lot of it had dried up. Yeah. Jerry Jeff is still kind of doing his thing, but he did a lot of fast living for about nine years. So he says at one point he owed American Express $95,000. Yeah. And so he called him up and he was like, can I just do a commercial for you? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And they were like, no, it's yes. not going to work. <laughs> I, got a, I got an offer for you. What do you want me to sell? That's great. Shall we move on? Yes. All right. Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. Almost nothing here. No SNL, no Arsenio Hall, no Halls of Fame. The one, I think you knew about this, the one nod to Jerry Jeff is there is a Simpsons where Homer sings Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles, we're all Bojangles, who killed Bojangles. That's fantastic. And that's it. So no Halls of Fame? Not that I saw. Uh, one thing I uncovered this that tracks, I— This tracks, though. This tracks. He's not that famous. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. One thing I uncovered that I really like is in October, they unveiled a statue of him in Luckenbach. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I need to get out there. Yeah. I think this is good. I think this is good fame. Yeah, I think it's good. I think this level of fame is enviable. Between John Prine, Larry McMurtry, and Jerry Jeff Walker, I like the idea of being an important figure behind the scenes, but also not necessarily being a household name. Like, there's something desirable about that. And, and Hugely is, desirable. Is it as simple as the loss of privacy looks like it sucks if you're accosted on the street? You don't want the very pinnacle because there's just too much burden and stress that yeah. comes with it. It's the whole, like, third most expensive bottle of wine on the menu is the one you want. <laughs> you don't want the, the top of the excess. Yeah. And that's where I see in this type of fame. Okay, let's move on. Category seven, over, under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see that they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So, life expectancy for a man born in 1942 is 71.4. Jerry Jeff lived to 78, so about seven years uh, over. I mean, that's right where we were with Bob Einstein. Yeah. It's a full life. I, one of the things I loved was a was the blueprint. I wish he'd had a, a few more years. Yeah, because it seems like he was getting into to just comfort and full retirement. Yeah. Uh, which I, I guess he did have yeah. for several years. But, um, you know, a few of those just purely golden well, off the map years. And, I mean, he was, I think, diagnosed with throat cancer in 2017. So there's a few years of struggle there. Yeah. And, emo I mean, emotionally or mentally, a singer to get throat cancer is yeah is miserable. I yeah. So even if had, had he beat the throat cancer, would he still have been able to sing? And play music, I don't know. He can't even sing it to himself as, as smoothly. Yeah. And that's got to hurt. So what about Grace? I kind of like it. Yeah. I sort of like the the denouement of Jerry Jeff Walker. The fact that, like, you know, when I first heard about him, it was late 90s. And not too long after that is when he is, his shows became more sparse. Yeah. 
and he would just play them selectively. He didn't do a ton. He didn't have a rigorous touring act. Uh, he released a few albums. I don't remember exactly when the last one was. I want to say like 2007, 2008. So I like it. I like the fading but not absent entirely. Yeah. He also has a thing in his, which I, I love this about him. This is very Austin. He has a thing in his autobiography of uh, falling in love with Barton Springs. There's a story in his autobiography about how after he has back surgery, for the first time he swims a lap and his whole family is there cheering him because, you know, he's back. Because it's major back surgery. I mean, it sounds like he's completely laid out. Um, and he, you know, loved to run. And he would run to auditorium shores. I mean, I saw pictures of that. So yeah. overall pretty graceful, you know, for a guy so. who partied really fucking hard. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. So I think we're both wanting a few more years for his sake, yeah. for him to have that just pure peace and tranquility, but it's not overly tragic. Let's take a break. Famous and Gravy listeners, every now and then we come on to recommend a podcast that we like and are excited to tell you about. Vanishing Postcards is a show that invites listeners on a road trip, exploring the hidden dives and histories found by exiting the interstates. Hosted by Texas native Evan Stern, the latest season invites you to ride shotgun as he motors west, cross-country on Route 66. From a dance in Tulsa to an Amarillo eating contest, Vanishing Postcards explores how the past, present, and future of this most iconic of roads is revealed through the stories of people and places found driving it today. Perfect for when you need a breather but don't have the luxury of hitting the open road, you can join this trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. And tell Evan we said hey. Danielle Steele. Oh! <laughs> alive. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. Danielle Steele is still with us at 74 years old. Dick Cavett. I think Dick Cavett is dead. Uh, incorrect. Dick Cavett is still with us at 85 years old. Oh. <laughs> Test your knowledge. Dead or alive app.com. Category eight Man in the Mirror. What did this person think about their own reflection? I think we got to talk more about his heavy drinking. If you look at his face, it's, he's got both a broad smile, but also a kind of heaviness to him, you know? And it's just not hard to picture him stumbling out of bed in the morning to the bathroom mirror and taking a look and going, oh. Has like an old Nick Nolte grunt. <laughs> yeah, totally. But also that being kind of routine and normal, you know? I struggled to answer this question, man in the mirror, because I think the party and lifestyle takes a toll and has an impact on how you view the mirror when you size yourself up and, you know, whenever you do. Yes. I lean yes, despite all that. I think he does have a confident quality to him. But it, I'm on the fence here, so I'm, I'm leaning yes, but I struggled with this one. I think the literal answers to these questions, like he was handsome, he was well-liked, I, I think he had a beautiful family, like all of those secure signs are checked. But these other things about identity and uh, and your habits. 
Because that's what Man in the Mirror is about. about. I mean, that's, that's what's what, brilliant that, about it. Mean, it's about a few things, but that's that's what it's really, really about. And Man in the Mirror is about sizing yourself up a little bit, right? What does my reflection show me? Yeah. So I'm going to go a lean no. Okay. Yeah. I see the case for that. I'm not changing my answer. Good for you. <laughs> Category nine. Outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail? Also, would they have used the default setting or would they record it themselves in terms of the outgoing message? So I went a resounding he liked his voice. I also think he would have proudly said you've reached the voicemail of Jerry Jeff Walker. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Category 10, regrets public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I got a couple things here. Yeah, me too. Let me get out with mine first. Okay. okay. Public, I think, how he handled his money and business in the 70s. I think that he allowed a lot of people to, like free riders. It's got to be something that's maybe on his mind. Private one, this is something I don't love about him. He kind of had a reputation for missing gigs. Yeah, or just being so blasted at them that like he was barely performing. Right. That, to me, communicates an untrustworthiness, you know? Like, you know, you say you're going to be there, be there. And to have a reputation is like, well, maybe Jerry Jeff's going to show up or maybe he's not, has me wondering a little bit. There was also, Texas Monthly, when he died, had a sort of rolling tribute of people writing things in about him. Robert Earl Kane wrote in and said, from a young age, he was somebody who was very important to me and very inspirational. However, we never became friends, which is kind of funny because we ran into each other a lot. I wondered about that because I feel like Robert O'Keefe and Jerry Jeff should be friends. And I don't have a theory of why that didn't happen. But the way Robert Earl wrote about it, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was this like trustworthiness quality. This came up in my research too. There was a passage I copied from The New Yorker that said, Walker developed an unparalleled reputation for carousing and occasional surliness. At one point, his daily regimen included a fifth of whiskey, a quarter ounce of cocaine, and a bit of speed. He once told a reporter, there are those who will never perform with me again. Another writer noted in Walker's heyday, there are those who will never talk to him again, and there are those who will never pay to see one of his concerts again. So he was a pain in the ass and untrustworthy at times when he fell a little too at the behest of these substances. I mean, he was also friends with Hunter S. Thompson. In fact, the, the term gonzo is used. The in Viva Terlingua, it's the great gonzo band. The lost yes. gonzo band, right? I mean, there is a gonzo quality to his lifestyle for a period of time. And, you know, what you just read, I mean, that there are people he hurt. Yeah. Whether he meant to or not, maybe it's just drunken rambunctiousness, but that has an impact on people. That can hurt people. And I said earlier, I do think that he gets his shit together in the 80s. You know, I think he gets his affairs in order. And to be able to do that means that he had the power of choice to be able to do that. So I don't think he's a degenerate necessarily, but I do think it took a lot of support. And I think that there's like problematic behavior in here that does he have regrets about any of that? I wonder. I don't see any signs of it. Me neither. That's what I wrote. I said, overall, very hard to say on the regrets category. He looks free, but maybe that's also about the image. At some point, that's about the image, too. You have something else you want to say? Yeah, yeah. I want to bring up some stuff in regrets. Okay. So he talked about in an interview, you know the song Pissing in the Wind? Oh, yeah. It became a bit of like a frat anthem yeah, a totally. little bit. He came to resent that, that like so many 
frat boys, as he said, would show up to his shows and just sing along to Piss in the Wind, and he came to sort of dread that arrival in that song. Nothing he can do about it, but he sort of regrets that it had that appeal. The University of Texas is, after all, in Austin. Yes, <laughs> this is true. And we're just pissing in the wind Bidding on a losing brand Making the same mistakes we swear We'll never make again So this is where I want to bring some personal stuff. Okay. Never in my life in 18 years did I really feel unwelcome as an Asian American Texan, as I did until my freshman year at the University of Texas. Yeah, you've told me that before. Yeah. And it was largely because of these subsects yeah. of, uh, you know, I'm grouping it into the fraternity culture, and that's maybe not entirely fair because it's not just them. No, but I know what you mean, and it's it's a fair enough shorthand for what you're talking about. And Jerry Jeff Walker was the logo, you know, on the shirt of these guys that essentially built up what I experienced as a non-integrated university. Yeah. One of my friends, freshman year, who I was very close with, was in like one of these very large fraternities. And they had a rule that essentially said only white people in fraternities. And my God, when he told me that, I was crushed. I thought college was progress after high school. I just didn't feel like you could just make friends with anybody or walk up to a party and join a party. But if you're from a certain preppy-ish nature, which I was, and I will not deny, there was no place for a racial minority at that school because of this culture in which he seemed to be a hero to the people that perpetuated that culture. Yeah. Only later did I learn he had nothing to do with it. Like, I, my early images of Jerry Jeff Walker were, you know, okay, so he's the king of the frat guys. He must be an overgrown frat guy himself. Yeah. Uh, and I thought the same kind of of Robert O'Keefe. It wasn't until, uh, you know, a couple of people that I trusted introduced me to the music that I came to eventually love it and see it for what it was, which was the bridge between rednecks and hippies, you know, walled off white people and free thinkers. But man, I wonder what he thinks about his following at that time. That's interesting. There is a, hey, let's all get drunk and sing along quality to his music that is very easily co-opted and it doesn't have a lot of depth. And I think that this happens. I think, you know, you create art and music and it gets appropriated, it gets misappropriated, you know, by subcultures. And I think that he wasn't in on that. Is it a regret? It may be a question of what you think music can do. Part of what Jerry Jeff is all about is creating an atmosphere, but also, if, you know, comes out of the folk scene and was in Greenwich Village in the 60s and, you know, comes to Austin and plants a flag in the early 70s, which leads to the outlaw, you know, music movement, that, that you don't do that just because you like the tunes. I think you do on some level believe that music can transform people. Yeah. Music can reach people and hit a deep inside. I mean, even your thing about masculinity, right? I mean, I feel like Jerry Jeff does have a kind of soulfulness and sensitivity that maybe the idea is, let me bring you in with Pissing in the Wind, but then listen to Mr. Bojangles and let me show you beauty and art on a deeper level. If you're not successful in that entire journey as an artist, are, are you regretful that you brought somebody in for the stupid reasons and didn't get to show them the meaningful reasons? I don't know if it's actually a regret or not, but I, I think 
it also could play into a legacy question that he should be more remembered for what he helped create. He shouldn't be remembered for who chose him. Right. But that, I mean, that frankly was my experience. Yeah, and that makes sense. I remember that uniform. I remember that subculture. And once I knew, I mean, I always loved Willie, but guys like Jerry Jeff and Robert O'Keen and all, it took me a while to learn. Yeah. Once I learned them, learned their stories, actually listened to the lyrics, yeah. I really, really loved them. Yeah. And maybe there's no regret to be had at all in Jerry Jeff. No, but it's but a good those, a- those who chose him at that time, it said something about who you were. Yeah. Which was completely fucking opposite from the Austin in the 70s that everyone glorified. Yeah, right. And to this day glorifies. Yeah. Yeah. Category 12? Okay. Yes. Category 12. Cocktail, coffee, cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we're most curious about. He is like the quintessential have a beer with him type. Totally. But to me, this is a wavelength question, because I don't think it's actually easy to get on his wavelength. So I... Think I want Valium. That's not one of the <laughs> options here. This is here we are. Or Xanax. <laughs> uh, episode 41. <laughs> and uh, Valium has I, been chosen. I just for think the first he time. and I would enjoy pills together to get on the right uh, wavelength. Absent that, I'm going to go cannabis. Okay. And I don't really think I'd enjoy the drunk version of Jerry Jeff all that much. I bet it was fun if you're in on the in crowd at the time. But I think I actually want to enjoy the music. And I want to swim in the soulfulness and the music. And I think his best vehicle for getting you there is probably the cannabis. So I learned guitar late in life. My goal is to be campfire competent. That's as high as I want to get. I like that, yeah. Thank you. I came up with that term. And it's funny with the guitar. If you pick it up, you know, some days you have rhythm and some days you don't. And you kind of can't predict it. But there really is nothing in the world like being with friends and jamming. And like it all kind of flowing together. There is a whole second language being expressed that I didn't even know existed. And I do feel like that level of connectivity is the connectivity I would enjoy through with Jerry Jeff. I think I'd really love to be part of a jam with him. And I think that that's probably good enough for me. Yeah. What do you got? I got cocktail. Uh, There's a couple of just phrases that keep jumping out of my head. You know, when he talks about a case of Lone Star beer and a fifth of wild turkey liquor. Yeah. You know, I kind of want all of that. And, you know, he was pals with Jimmy Buffett. You know, that Jimmy Buffett line that says, I ran into a chum with a bottle of rum and we wound up drinking all night. Yeah. I used to fantasize about, like, doing that and being, like, a Jimmy Buffett 50-something age. That was the highest form of pleasure I could ever imagine. It just sounded so much fun. Yeah. And Jerry Jeff being often called the Jimmy Buffett of Texas, I, I think that's what I wanted, even though he sunset his hard drinking days, per se. But I, I want to run into Jerry Jeff Walker and him bring me back and we wound up drinking all night. But I do want to go there to that question with him and say, hey, man. This is my own personal experience. This may not matter to a single other person. But what your shield and your shirt symbolized to me in the mid to late 90s was the first time I have ever felt severe disappointment. I've ever felt unwelcome. Yeah, I've ever felt biased against. And I felt like my heart was fucking broken, period. And, you know, then he can even think that my music actually is about the harmony of it all. 
but I got to air it off my chest with him. There's an interesting question here about the culture that an artist attracts intentionally or unintentionally, right? I'd like to think that were Jerry Jeff confronted with that truth, he might have responded and reacted. Mm -hmm. But who knows? But who knows? All right. Final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. All right. You want Jerry Jeff's life? I never say it right off the bat. Yeah. But I build a case. I think the case is all in our five things. Yeah. Right. So pretty good blueprint, as you said, from age zero to 78 in terms of like following this non-traditional, traditional path. Yeah. I love the opportunity and the Americanness of the reinvention and choosing your geography and perhaps choosing your name. I mean, there's nothing greater than a sense of place. And this man came to define what Austin, Texas was in the 1970s. He did not buy Lukenbach, Texas, like uh, Hondo did, but he certainly made Lukenbach yeah. what it is today. And to have two cities attached to your name is huge it's cool. in terms of legacy. I think he did have a message of live for this moment and not 10 years ago was better or 20 years ago was better. Yeah. He definitely said, we are here in the present right now and we are having the time of our fucking lives. And that is a great way to live. I mean, he may have, he may have been arrested 11 times in New Orleans and spent however many times in jail cells and been completely ass broke. And the fact that he even had a career at all was by the sheer pure luck of the fact that he went to jail on that certain night and met that dancer. But my God, is that not a beautiful story? Yeah, that's good. Right? Meeting this woman who still, I mean, you see students now, she is still gorgeous. She's this incredible woman. She's got a lot of vitality and a lot of like, yeah, I mean, badass. Incredible woman who was his tethering and who, through this rough and rocky country music and rock and roll touring lifestyle, had a stable marriage. And one of the last scenes you see of them is holding hands in the sunset on Ambergris Key in Belize. That's fucking beautiful. Yeah. So I see a man who was incredibly important to those who loved him. I yeah. mean, he was not best friends with Robert O'Keefe, and there was some asshole-ish behind that. Yeah. Right? But he did have, you know, those friends and Jimmy Buffett. You did see the way Ray Wiley Hubbard or Charlie Robinson I mean, even Garth Brooks, even Pat Green. I mean, the, 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 name, the list goes on and on with people who, who thank him. Yeah, so the case for is pretty strong. I mean, the case against, I listed my personal issues, but I don't think that's a Jerry Jeff issue. I agree. So what is the case against... I'll give you my thought on that. He caused some pain in some places. He hurt some people. Did he ever really make amends to that? Was this a little hedonistic? Is this a little For the, selfish? The selfishness in the shows that he yeah, didn't, that he didn't the untrustworthy quality of it. I mean, I think he righted the ship and he grew into a certain level of responsibility. But I've been doing this thing maybe a little too much on our show about sort of I don't know, spirituality, right? And connecting with something more than yourself and uh, like a certain amount of selflessness. I, I see love. But love and selflessness are not exactly the same thing. But I also do see it in places. I think the mentoring of Todd Snyder, among others, you know, I think that there was a real effort to give himself over in as much as he could. I, I see an evolution of a human. And maybe it's a sufficient evolution. There's a part of me that wants Jerry Jeff to go further because I also intuit a certain kind of, I don't know, wisdom to the man. And so my expectations of him are kind of high because of his God-given talents. I don't know. That's the case against, did he go far enough? Did he grow enough? Did he evolve enough? Right? Did he give over enough? Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't know. Maybe. I, I, yes, I think so. But I don't, I'm not 
something about me isn't 100% convinced that it's it's like— There's not a mountain of evidence that it wasn't entirely just about him. Right. And that's, I think, maybe partly the burden of being a folk hero and of having a cult following, but is it being given over for the greater good? You know? Yeah, that's a good point. It's my only hesitation with a yes here, and I think it probably is. So I'll go ahead and give you my answer. I'm going to go yes. It's not a resounding yes because I still have questions about the man's legacy and his activities later in life and how much he does hand over his archives or his contributions or or gives over of himself to some greater cause. But, like, Jesus, he did a lot to create a cultural substrate in Central Texas— where people would come. And to this day, it's an attractive force for people from all over the country. He helped create this place as the live music capital of the world. And that's not something that's a fucking slogan or a branding strategy. That's lived. That's something you do through your art. And that, that to me, is enough. Yeah. So that is a demarcation, I think, is, is sort of the absence of an obvious spiritual growth or obvious giving it away. There's the mentoring. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you there. So where are you? I think it's the guy that lived his songs, did all those other things that I talked about, and it seems like a pretty damn good life. I think those that were left in his wake, there were some disappointed people and some broken hearts, and I don't think he could have done too much more. Mostly, I like the level that he reached of of regional hero, you know, living in three different places, good lifestyle, but still a father. Some of it's admirable. So, I mean, yes. Good enough. Let's go with good enough. Okay. I think you should take us out. Okay. Amit, you are Jerry Jeff Walker. You've died, you've gone to the pearly gates, the Unitarian proxy for the afterlife, and you are here to meet St. Peter. The floor is yours to make your pitch. St. Peter, when you're stuck and you're asking how to get out of here, somebody gave me some advice about 60 years ago, and he said, just go. And I did that, and I just went and went and went, and I lived big, I lived hard, I lived fast. Most importantly, I lived in the present. And every time I got on stage, I helped other people live in the present. There was nowhere else they wanted to be, whether that was in a street corner in New Orleans in 1960s or a dance hall in Luckenbach in the 70s or even in a backyard somewhere in the whole country in the late 90s. You never, ever wanted to be anywhere else but having fun with your friends on a Saturday night whenever I was singing and at the microphone. I brought people together. I showed that the time is not later. The time is not in the past. The time is right now to have the time of your fucking life. So St. Peter, raise your fucking glass, tip it towards me, and let me in. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying this show, please share it with your friends. We're trying to get the word out. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you again for listening. Tell your friends. 
See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.